0: You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. My guest today wrote his first
1: novel in a science lab in just five weeks. When I had a long incubation step, I would just write words, and then I would get up and do the science and then sit down. And while I was waiting, I would write more words. And slowly but surely, the book came together. That's Brandon Taylor. That first book is called Real Life, and
0: he wrote it while he was a grad student in a biochemistry program.
1: I was studying stem cells and nematodes. The main character in Real Life
0: is named Wallace. And Wallace also spends most of his time in a lab. Wallace is a biochem grad student also studying nematodes. And a strange thing happened when the book came out. It brought together a community that you have probably never thought about.
1: One of the delightful things about publishing this book was that Nematode Twitter found it, and they were like, finally, representation for the worm. And yes, my people. Nematode hive, rise Basically, up. Basically, worm hive, let's go. Yeah, no, it was great.
0: Brandon Taylor does not look at worms all day under microscopes anymore. He quit his grad program and got an MFA in writing. And after he released Real Life, to much acclaim in 2020, he published his second book this year. It's a short story collection called Filthy Animals. So Brandon's books are all about the awkwardness and sometimes cruelty that exists in our everyday relationships. Platonic relationships and romantic relationships and in-between relationships as well. His books are also very much about how identity and who we are informs our relationships and how we move through the world. Brandon is black and queer and his stories offer a view of the world through those perspectives. All that to say I am very excited to share this chat with you all and I'm very honored to let you know that this conversation is part of a collaboration between NPR and the Library of Congress National Book Festival. I know fancy right? Little kid Sam reading under the covers past his bedtime with the flashlight would be so proud. All right, if you want more information about the festival, visit loc.gov/bookfest. With that, here is my chat with Brandon Taylor. Enjoy. I want to talk about your books, but I want to talk about some of your other writing that I've also been devouring lately. Um, your Substack and then other stuff like your recent review in the New York Times of Sally Rooney's new book. It feels as if you're entering this space of cultural criticism. And I like it. But I'm wondering for you, a novelist and a fiction writer by trade, does that kind of cultural writing and cultural criticism, does it feel safer or less safe or more fun or less fun than just writing fiction?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well... Oh, that's so harrowing. I mean, I think. I mean, I think that you know, since you know, you've been following me on the internet, that I love to make fun of critics. That I'm like, ooh, I'm not. I'm glad I'm not a real critic. Um, <laughs> and and I th- and I mean, it's like it's been a sort of running gag for many years now. Not all of my critic friends are like, aha, uh-huh, now you see behind the curtain. Um, yeah, I mean, I think of myself first and foremost, and always as a fiction writer. And fiction is the thing that I find easiest and the most fun to do it's sort of my primary mode but for much of the last year since I put out my first novel I haven't really been able to write fiction just because of you know the demands of being a sort of outward facing author persona Um, and and it's just been really tough to sort of get back into that sort of small private strange interior world you have to access in order to be able to write fiction and so I've just been like for a long time I was just like not writing and then at the start of 2021 I started reading all these these books about literary criticism and and cultural criticism and just like like histories of the American novel and American literature and and I suddenly had access to all of these like all this language to think through and talk about, you know, things in books that I'd always wanted to talk about, but didn't really know how real critics did it. And and so I was like, I really wish I could like start writing some of these ideas down. Um, and I realized like, well, I have this defunct newsletter, maybe I can just revive it and try to write a little bit each week just as a way of getting some thoughts down and just trying to experiment but at the end of the day I feel like I'm I'm finally getting to to talk about art in a way that feels organic and natural to me and that I'm not like putting on a quote unquote serious voice so yeah. you know it's it's been a different kind of fun I feel it's been a it's been a delightful little experiment yeah i like it because
0: one of the themes that i pick up when i'm reading your substack and other stuff is that You're not just talking about, you know, a show that you were into or a movie that you were into. You're also, in these really interesting ways, talking about the moment we're in. And specifically in the essay that you wrote on Substack about that new Netflix show starring Sandra O. the show's called The Chair. You know, there's this one section in that essay where you're talking about just the proliferation of so many things to watch. You wrote, quote, and this stuck with me. Things have never looked so good or sounded so good, but at the same time, never has it been easier to borrow the signifiers and attributes of good art and commodify them to disguise deeply mediocre And, like, when I read it, I said, that's it. I hadn't been able to put my finger on this moment until you wrote that. Like, we're in this moment of everything and abundance,
1: but a lot of it's just not good, (laughs) And, you know, it feels like it feels very taboo to say that out loud. Like, it feels like, you know, like going to a party and talking about a show that everybody there enjoyed. And you'll be like, yeah, but it wasn't good, though. Right. And everybody looks at you like you just did the worst (laughs) faux pas in the world. And they're like, because they're like, no, it had Laura Dern in it. It has to be good. And
0: you're like, no, I don't know. It wasn't good.
1: I don't maybe it wasn't good. You know, maybe it wasn't good. I enjoyed it. You know, what I mean it's and with a show yeah. like The Chair, like that show I binge. Like I watched that show straight through. I love everything Sandra O oh does. I cannot get enough of her. She is an icon, a legend. And it wasn't I didn't think it was like a great show. I didn't think it was even a particularly good show. It was a fine show, a solid show. But what I did recognize in it was that it had borrowed all these little signifiers, you know, all these little It looked gestures. expensive. It looked exp- well made. You know it looked mm-hmm. <laughs> like somebody had a wardrobe budget because you're not going <laughs> to dress Sandra <laughs> Owen nothing, you know, exactly. like but it <laughs> But it felt like gloss at the expense of depth or or mm. substance and when you when you what I call it like, kick the tires on it, like <laughs> there's nothing there. It's hollow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about both books. Uh let's start with Real Life. Can you give our listeners maybe a 30-second plot synopsis for those who haven't read it yet?
1: Yeah, so Real Life is a novel about uh, Wallace, who is a PhD student in biochemistry, and he discovers one Friday afternoon... That his experiments have been sabotaged or maybe he ruined them himself and he ge- decides that he's going to go to the lake with his friends and it sets into motion a series of personal and professional confrontations um that he has to negotiate and trying to figure out like what is a real life and how to live and act with agency in the world and it's also
0: just kind of like this book about I don't know. I was writing down notes as I was reading and I said to myself, feels like the two central questions of this book are, do we ever really like our lives and do we ever really (laughs) like our friends?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so true of so many things. And I feel like the answer to that question in that book is no, probably not on both counts. (laughs) What does that no mean,
0: though? Because like... No was an easy answer to a question that's really a lot more complex because this idea of, like, not really liking the lives that we're living, that's a question I'm sure all of us have asked ourselves in this last year. What does it mean to ask that question through the context of Wallace in the book and just, like, in life for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that for Wallace you know, he is someone who has survived his life by by accepting what he's been given and just sort of trying to make the best of it and trying to take up as little space as possible. And really the sort of, the dominant action of the book is what happens when you, a person who's been told your whole life that you just have to accept it and bear it and live with it, what happens when you say, no, that's not enough. This This right here, this is not enough for me. I would like more. And it's you dare to seek more from your life. And I feel that, For Wallace, like his unhappiness in some sense is like truly just beginning because he's just being like, I don't accept the premise that I've been given. And he moves from this sort of miserable stasis into agency. And sometimes that brings him great ecstasy over these, you know, the weekend that the book takes place across. And sometimes it brings him great pain and, and danger. And, you know, I feel that when you say to your life or to your current circumstances, this is not enough. I would like more. That isn't being, you know, it's not like in Disney where you get to ride off into the sunset on your <laughs> your magic carpet. What you're saying is, I'm going to seek more and act with agency. And that means taking the good with the bad, the pain with the, the pleasure, the the ecstasy with the sort of deep sorrows because like life is unpredictable. And when you upset the apple cart of your mm-hmm. life... Mm-hmm. You know, you're inviting risk and risk and agency are the, the sort of twin forces that govern a lot of our our lives. So I think that when you when you say, like, do we ever really like our lives? And if you say no, I think that that is saying saying no to that question means saying yes to possibility with all that it entails. Coming
0: up, we talk more about race in real life and Brandon's second book, Filthy Animals.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Monday.com. If you're drowning in work instead of steering the ship, you know there's got to be a better way. With Monday.com WorkOS, your team can choose how your workflow looks. That way, you can stay on top of your work and say goodbye to work overload. Over 125,000 customers get more out of their workday with Monday.com. So if you want your team to be more effective than ever, visit Monday.com slash podcast for your free two-week trial
0: this book is also so much about what it means for Wallace to be a black face in a very white space. Um, and I was wondering if you writing about that through fiction has made that reality for you, a black man in book publishing, a very still a very white world. Has it made that experience any easier being able to write about the experience, <laughs> even if just through Wallace in Wisconsin? Oh,
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it's all kind of the same. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I wrote that book when I was the only black person in my PhD program at UW Madison. It was like a hundred person program. I was the only black person. And also the five years I was there, they released the the sort of rep, like diversity data or whatever on the demographics of the university. And there were like 273 black graduate students across all doctoral and professional degree programs wow. out of 10,000 graduate students on campus. So, wow. Um and I would see like 15 of them every couple of weeks at this fellowship thing that I was a part of the, the sort of black the sort of POC students in the sciences there was a fellowship for us and so we would we would often see each other every couple of weeks and complain about the white people in our labs. And so, you know, like writing that, writing that novel, I was writing it as like the only black person. And then I went to cre- Iowa to study creative writing and I was no longer the only black person there. Okay. There are many, it was, a, it's become a very diverse program. And it was, it's strange. It's very strange. I think that in some ways, like, publishing is still incredibly white. I think the numbers are not good. But what I have been excited by in the last couple of years is just the number of other black, especially black queer writers who are writing these incredible books that are getting so much buzz and acclaim. That has been incredible. And I don't think, I mean, it was quite different five years ago, you know, when I left my program. I mean, it was it was so different even five years ago. And I feel like it's Night and day, but still so very white.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What I found interesting about Wallace was that when he starts to assert agency, a few of his white friends are like, this isn't like you. (laughs) And it's like, no, 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 this is very much Wallace. You just haven't seen this side of him. And how dare you? And I feel like that is a challenge a lot of people from marginalized backgrounds face when they stop being the quiet one and i wonder i don't know does the story of wallace offer some guidance
1: in that respect
0: as people navigate
1: that i mean it it's so real i mean i remember i will never forget this one time somebody basically called me lazy and i was like well i'm not lazy and they're like don't yell at me and I'm like i'm <laughs> not my voice is not even raised i just resisted your classification of me as a human being um yeah i mean i think that the novel dramatizes you know someone who has survived white supremacist institutions by internalizing what it wants from him it's he's sort of internalized this sort of terrifying objectifying gaze and that's how he's gotten by and when he suddenly starts being like no i'm not going to just like disappear so you can feel comfortable then all the white people get very anxious mm-hmm. and some of them get angry some of them feel sad um some of them feel distress. Which is crazy because these white people
0: throughout the whole book are fully expressing their fullest range of emotions at all times. <laughs> they're yes. always on 10. They're always on 10. And as soon as Wallace gets to a 6 or a 7,
1: they're like, Whoa, hold up oh yeah he gets like I didn't like that and they're like whoa why are you being so (laughs) aggressive yeah so I don't know if the book has any lessons but I hope that when people read it they're like oh yeah it's totally like that and what I found really interesting in talking to white people about the book is that many of them have been like wow you really held up a mirror to some of my toxic behavior I didn't even realize that I was like doing this and I was like well, I didn't write it about you, but if you were doing this, like, please stop. Please, stop. <laughs> yes. please like, like, please stop because you're probably making people in your life anxious, unhappy, and and you're making your baggage their problem. Um, so that has yeah. been really fascinating, the extent to which white people have, have been able to clock the sort of dangers of white silence when a black, when a sort of person of color is being silenced and overlooked. And and that has been a fascinating part of it, the white guilt component to the, yeah. <laughs> to the book's
0: reception. Yeah. Although, you know what? Keep reading it, white people. Keep feeling guilty. That's part of the work. Do it.
1: It, Yes. Discomfort is a part of the growth. There you go.
0: I want to make sure we talk about Filthy Animals. Uh, Same question for you for this book. Can you give our listeners a 30-second synopsis of that book without giving everything away?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. So Filthy Animals is a short story collection um, at the heart of which is a linked story cycle that follows a young man, Lionel, who is trying to figure out how to be in the world again after recently getting out of a hospital. Um, and so it's a lot about, I think, what a lot of us are experiencing with quarantine, which is like, how do I interact with other people? How do I go to parties? How do I f- figure out how to socialize and 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 connect with people again? And then there are other stories that sort of orbit themes of loneliness and caretaking and caregiving. And and they sort of are all sort of set in the mid. West, so like Iowa and Wisconsin.
0: Yeah. It's about like, what does it mean to reintroduce yourself into the world and talk to strangers again and make small talk and go to dinner parties? Mm-hmm. But it, I also felt like so much of filthy animals and also real life was like things to avoid. You know, reading <laughs> these scenes of like the awkward dinner party interactions for me, the lesson was like, stop going to dinner parties you don't want to go to. You're oh too old gosh. to be around folks you don't want to be around. <laughs> Right? <laughs> yes. I wanted to I mean, take Ladlam and be like, you don't have to go, man. You don't have to, like, you don't have to hang out with these fools.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that he makes the decision to go to that dinner party almost on reflex, he's like, well, in the before time, I would have gone to this. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll go. And mm-hmm. then he goes and he's like, this was a mistake. Yeah. This was – I mean the, the particular horror of going to a place out of obligation and realizing immediately that it was a mistake, yeah. but because of social obligation, you can't leave. Oh. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Listen, it's oh hard. Oh, my gosh. Well, this is why it's... I just really don't ever commit to anything until the day of. I'm in the business of telling folks like, I'm
1: going to see how I feel that day. And I'm probably going to text you and ask who else is going to be there. And then we'll see. <laughs> well, see, I feel like you can get away with that as you are like a mega celebrity. For the rest of us, oh, it's God. like mm, – <laughs> for the rest of us, it's just like a kind of a rude habit. But I, <laughs> I'm i going to cultivate that air. I'm just going to be like – I'll I'll let you know. But see, like I have yeah. such a difficult time with it because I like, – like I had like such a strict, like very traditional southern upbringing that the idea of like <laughs> – Being, like, Mm -hmm. potentially putting someone else, like, out. I'm just, I can't. I get, like, chills. I feel like I can hear my grandmother yelling at me to (laughs) to get my act together. But I think I just got to embrace it. It's a a 2021. We got to throw these social rules out. You really do. Up next, Brandon on the queerness of his books
0: and who he's actually writing for. Stick around. Wallace is gay. He ends up hooking up with someone who may or may not be gay, doesn't know what words he wants to use around it. Someone who I actually also hate. I hated him too. I'm not going to give away spoilers (laughs) and name who it was, but he was a trash man. Okay. (laughs) And there were several moments where I was like, Wallace run, you're in danger, girl, you're in danger. (laughs) But I digress. (laughs) My larger question is, can these books be considered queer fiction or are they something else? Because, There are real and textured characters in these books who kind of blur the lines of sexuality or at least have some ambivalence about where they fit into the spectrum or what titles they would put on it. You know, you have these characters doing queer things who might not call themselves queer. Does that mean it's not quite queer fiction or something else? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that... um, I I think of myself as like a queer author and I think that everything I write is about queer characters, even when even when the sort of main character isn't necessarily obviously queer. I feel like there's a very present queer gaze in my work because that's who I am. In the same way that I think all my fiction is kind of black fiction in a way. Like I'm a black like I I have the gaze that I have and I'm very much writing from a sort of queer black sensibility. Um, I mean I do think of real life as being a queer novel in the same way that I think of it's kind of like a black novel and I think it's a novel about solipsistic young male (laughs) You know, experience and, and being self-absorbed um, and trying to figure out who you are. Um, but I do think, I think that the sort of fluidity of the characters, that to me doesn't make it unqueer. Like to me, that's like very much a part of queerness. I think queerness is capacious. And I think that queerness can also be a framework you know with which to understand human relationships and some of the queerest relationships i have seen in my life have been between straight men like they they have like Listen, a very i mean it's like, really
0: it's weird
1: I not mean, weird good good for them it's, but like <laughs> you know but like it's sometimes they don't even know they don't even see it and i'm like you guys are so in love it's beautiful but like mm-hmm. i can't say anything about it because someone might die if i if i <laughs> bring your attention to it you know like <laughs> very yeah. often like intimate relationships there is a valence of what feels like queerness and mm. and so like yeah I mean I think of my works as having a real sort of queer sensibility because at the end of the day I'm trying to write honestly and authentically and directly about human relationships and the power dynamics, but like within human relationships and I'm a queer black man. And so that is going to inherently be the lens through which I approach, you know, human relationships. And so I consider them queer books, but they're not just queer books, not that queerness or blackness are limiting, but It's one of the many things that I think the books are up to.
0: Yeah. Well, and like what I admire about the way you talk about sexuality in the context of friend groups is the way in which you point out many times in lots of relationships that we don't particularly think are sexual, there is a layer of sexuality and sensuality to them. You know, like... I think we say, well, friendships are asexual and our partners, that's who we have a sexual relationship with. But like the penumbra of sexuality and attraction and desire can be laid over all different kinds of relationships in different kinds of ways. And both books live in that
1: gray space delicately and beautifully i think mm, yeah i mean i think that all relationships are complicated I, I think of relationships a lot like weather systems like it's always it's always mm. shifting it's always changing it's a dynamic thing and and i think there especially i mean listen especially among like queer men like there is a very dense valence of sexuality to many of those <laughs> many yeah. of those friendships um for reasons that are historical and <laughs> And etc. But like I mean it's just very true that there are all these memes about like gay male friends and like the ones of which you've slept with and the ones of which you haven't slept with yet. Like it's it's, the gay handshake, you know. You know, I mean totally. (laughs) And I think that anytime you're sort of in like intensely involved with someone, even if it's a Pla- "Quote unquote platonic relationship." There isn't necessarily that you want to sleep with them, but there is an element of eros to that. There and is desire, yeah, and attraction, and desire, there, yeah, totally, yeah. It's all a part of, I think, the human, <laughs> the human field um, of emotion and and relation to one another.
0: Yeah, you know, there are these scenes that just kind of lay out the ways in which Wallace secretly hates everyone that he calls his (laughs) friends even the ones that he ends up sleeping with and you're just like at a certain (laughs) point like i wondered several times i was like what do brandon's real friends in real life think of this book and what it says about his own friendships
1: oh yeah well you know i (laughs) (laughs) that's a great question so You know, my closest friends who I met in college are also queer black men from Alabama, and... Ooh, sign me up for that group chat. I want to be in. It is very spicy, Um, (laughs) you know, but it's, you know, it's like, they're like, yes, go get them. Tell how it is, and when, when the book was when the book was a finalist for the Booker Prize, my my closest friend in the world called me and he said, you know, Brandon, you write about us and you write about our experiences. And it never felt like, it never felt like our, our lives mattered, but now it feels that you have told the world about us and the world has said that we matter. And of mm-hmm. course, like we've always mattered, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But you know, I remember I started writing stories because those same friends took me to a bookstore to buy me like a book because I was like very depressed and the bookstore clerk was like we don't sell those kinds of books here we're a family store and to go from that to then writing a book that was nominated for one of the most prestigious awards in the country and not just any book but a book very much about like a character who was in some ways an amalgam of me and my closest friends like that felt like telling the culture that it couldn't set the terms of like our lives for us. And it was like at this really emotional moment, and we had a big old cry <laughs> on the phone about wow. it. Um, and so they, you know, my friends love the book, but it's very interesting. I took this, I, I you know, I say it like I took it home to Wisconsin for my very last in person book tour event on the book tour for this book. And, and, I thought maybe three people would show up because the book is set in Madison, Wisconsin. It's about a science program in Madison, Wisconsin. I thought three people would show up. I went to the bookstore. It was packed wow. through, and this is in like this is like two days before shutdown. So people are like, oh, wow. coronavirus, ooh, yeah. you know. But this bookstore was packed with people from the science programs that I, you know, had known and and people I didn't know, and all these people had come out to say that this book had articulated something true about. That experience Mm -hmm. of being in science in Madison, it felt like the whole city had embraced the book in a way that was, like, really beautiful, even as the book sort of lovingly critiqued (laughs) Madison. Lovingly
0: is a word you could use some parts. It's not lovingly. At some points, you're just like, this town, these people, this school.
1: (laughs) Um, but then I you know, I went out to dinner with former lab mates and they had all read the book and they had all been so supportive and really loving about it. Went out to dinner with my friends, um, some of my friends from my program, my cohort mates. And they were like, yeah, the first five pages, I was like, wow, he's writing a novel about us. But then you turn the page on page six and then it just becomes a novel. And I'm like, yeah, that's how fiction works, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so no one has been like, I resent this novel at least not to my face. I'm sure there are there are group chats where that is not the case. But to me they've been nothing but supportive and very loving.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> was there a
1: who was the one that that went off on Wallace in the book? Was there an actual oh, Dana in real life?
0: Is, is that a real person? Was oh. that real?
1: Oh, my gosh. Yes, so there is a character very much who who I wrote the character of Dana into the book to deal with like some very sort of present and ongoing what felt like racialized harassment in my lab and and you know she that person was my bay mate who sat literally right side by side with me for many for a couple of years and they were just not a great they weren't a great teammate I'll say that for it and really funny I was working on one of the Dana scenes in lab like a very bad boy and this person comes up to me and taps me on the shoulder because they had been reading over my shoulder oh, no. the whole time and they're like i know who that is and i turned to them and i was like you do and they're like that's based on a real person i know who it's based on and i was like who and they're like and they named this other person in lab <laughs> and i was like yes absolutely." <laughs> It is based on that person, and like there was a little bit of that person in that character, in the same way that there's a little bit of everything in all the characters. But that was oh, that was a real That's close crazy. call.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm hearing you talk about all of the various audiences that enjoyed the book. You know, your black queer friends from back home, the Wisconsin community, the <laughs> Nebrtodoed community. But when you were writing this book, um, who were you writing it for? What specific audience or reader?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I was writing it for, I always, when I sit down to write, I always write for for two friends, my two queer black friends who were, I think in some ways, like the first two friends who were black, who I met, who were so much like me that it was like we had been separated Mm. at birth. Mm. Um, And they taught me how to be how to be loved because I hadn't been loved very much as a child. And I always say that I was raised by wolves until I met them. (laughs) Um, and so whenever I write anything and there were the friends who took me to that bookstore where the clerk is like, we don't sell those kinds of books here. Mm. Um, and so whenever I sit down to write anything, I'm always thinking first and foremost about them and trying to write things that will make them, not just feel represented, but will make them laugh or cry or feel something or things that they will understand or be engaged by. Writing fiction that will honor their sensibility. Um, and, you know, that it's been like that since I wrote my very first short story in undergrad. And I mean, I was working on a novel earlier today and I was still, I'm always still thinking of of them, And so they are the people who are sort of first and foremost in my mind. Yeah. And I'm not writing to a demographic. I'm writing to these two people who, who loved me and taught me to love and to be loved. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm always thinking about them. I love that.
0: Hey, well, thank you so much for this chat. I have enjoyed so thoroughly getting immersed in your writing and now in this conversation. And I am so excited for folks to just hear you think out loud. Thank you for this chat.
1: Oh, thank you. It was such a pleasure.
0: Thanks again to Brandon Taylor. Both of his books are out right now, and you can catch even more of his writing on his Twitter and his Substack. This conversation was part of an NPR collaboration with the Library of Congress National Book Festival. For more information and author interviews, visit loc.gov bookfest. This episode was produced by Liam McBain, and it was edited by Jordana Hochman. All right, listeners, don't forget we're back this Friday with a new episode. And for that one, we want to hear from you sharing the best part of your week. Just record yourself and send that file to me via email. That email address is samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. All right, till Friday, thank you, as always, for listening. Be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.